Uh, we're getting close to the end of this series we've been doing called Love Walked Among Us. And what we've been doing each week is taking a portion from the Gospels. That's the stories about Jesus' life and death and resurrection in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We've been taking an interaction that Jesus has with people and looking at what that means about how we're to love. Now, we've been looking from all four Gospels, and sometimes we describe the four Gospels as biographies. We'll say, oh, these are just kind of like biographies of Jesus. And that's, totally, that, that's not totally incorrect, but uh, it's pretty different from most biographies. Most biographies spend about an equal amount of time going through a whole person's life. The Gospels, on the other hand, tell you a little bit about Jesus' birth, just in a few of the Gospels. Only one Gospel tells you a little bit about when he was a teenager. Almost all of it is about these three years when he's about 30 years old. So almost the whole story is just about these three years of his life. And about 25 to 30% of the Gospels are just about the last week of Jesus' life. Can you imagine if you read a, a biography... <laughs> But they didn't tell you anything about they were, how they were born. They didn't tell you about their early life. They didn't tell you about their parents. They just told you about a few years when they were an adult and how they died. That's what you have in the Gospels. Why? Why are, why are the Gospels so kind of disproportionately focused on this last week of Jesus' life? The passion narrative, the suffering narrative, Jesus going to the cross. Why? Well, here's why. Because the cross of Jesus is crucial for understanding the Christian faith, but it's also crucial for living as a follower of Jesus. The cross of Jesus, the death of Jesus, is supposed to shape us. It's supposed to form us. It informs us, to be sure, tells us what the Christian faith is about, that Christ died for our sins, that Jesus died as a substitute, that Jesus came to initiate the kingdom of God through his death and resurrection. So it informs us, but it's also supposed to transform us, to shape us, to reorient our whole approach to life. Now think about what I just said. The death of Jesus is supposed to reorient our whole way of life. And therein lies the tension of following Jesus. Now, we're reaching kind of this last part of our series. Each week, we've been looking at these different themes related to love. Here's some of what we've seen in the series. We've seen that love shows compassion. We've seen that a number of places as Jesus sees people and looks them in the eye and cares for them and meets them where they're at. We've also seen that love speaks the truth. Uh, Jesus does not shrink back from people. Jesus does not kind of play nice. Jesus tells them the truth because he loves them. He says, go and sin no more. When he sees apathy in people who don't care about the least and the lost, he confronts it because love speaks the truth. Love also depends on God and is energized by faith. We've seen this throughout this series that Jesus is not just doing his own thing, but he's doing what God directs him to because love is energized by faith. And finally, what we're seeing in this particular part and where we're going really for the next three weeks is that love moves through death into life. Love moves through death into life. If you're going to follow Jesus, you are following Jesus through death and into life. That's what this passage, that's what this interaction that Jesus has is all about. There's kind of a hinge point actually in the Gospel of John and in Jesus' life that takes place in this particular passage. And it reminds me of kind of that moment that happens 
on a wedding day. I, I get to, as a pastor, officiate weddings, and that's always kind of a fun thing and a neat thing to be part of, of that whole day. And, and the wedding day to me is so interesting. I think, I think brides have it really tough on the wedding day, right? There's so much pressure. They got it, the makeup and the hair and the nails and got to get all the clothes right. And it's, it's just so much pressure. For the guys, it's like just a blast, right? It's like the guy just has to get his tux on, right? And, and so you, even like being sort of backstage where the weddings happen, the, 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 the bride and her, her you know, uh, bridesmaids, that's what they're called, they all get dressed in this very kind of posh type, whatever the nicest room at a church is, that's where they are. My, meanwhile, the, the groomsmen are all like in a broom closet upstairs, <laughs> but they don't care because they have beer and they have cheese and they have chips and they're just as happy as they can be, right? And so it's very, it, it's just a very, you know, I'm, I'm never in the, the women's side of that. I'm always hanging out in, in the, the guy's room. And so it's interesting because it's just like this total hangout party type session. Everything is funny. All the jokes, everybody's farting. I mean, it's just everything you'd expect. And then at some point, the mood in the room shifts. And it goes from, dude, isn't this cool to, oh boy. This is going down for real. Like this is, whew, and the palms get sweaty and the voice cracks and you can just tell something and, and it's never the same thing, but, but different guys, they, something triggers like, oh boy, it's game time now. This is, something's for real. That's what happens in this story that we just read. Because up to this point, Jesus has known he was going to be headed to the cross. Jesus has known he was going to sacrifice himself for the sins of the world, but, but at this point now, it becomes imminent. And the phrase that is used all throughout John's gospel to describe this suffering moment, the suffering time of Jesus, is always described as the hour, the hour. Look at what it says in verse 23. Actually, back up to verse 20. Here's what triggers this. It is among those who, were, who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks, so some non-Jews, they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. So Jesus hears, hey, there's some Greeks that are here to see you. Now, we just kind of blow right over that, but, but here's why that's significant. Jesus' mission up to this point had been focused on the Jews. He had not been focusing on the non-Jewish world, and now the non-Jewish world is showing up to get in on Jesus. Well, this triggers something for Jesus. This is a signal for Jesus. And it's this moment now when things shift. Look at how it shifts. Verse 23. And Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. All throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus refers to his hour. In John chapter 2, he says, my hour has not yet come. In John chapter 7, he says, it says, his hour had not yet come. In John chapter 8, it says, his hour had not yet come. There were these things that maybe he was going to suffer. Oh, no, 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 no. His hour had not yet come. But now look at what he says. The hour has come. And from here on out, right, in, in verse 27, he says, Father, save me from this hour, right? It's the hour. But for this purpose, I've come to this hour, right? It, it's now. It went from someday to now. And so in John chapter 13, it says, Jesus knew that his hour had come. Chapter 17, he prays, Father, the hour 
has come. So something has shifted in Jesus. And it's go time. And it's going down for real. And the seriousness of what he's about to suffer begins to sink in. Not that he didn't know about it, but he's beginning to experience it in a much more visceral way. So what you see in this passage is he begins to teach his disciples about what this means, that his hour has come, but he can't even finish teaching them without moving into prayer because he's so overwhelmed by the reality of what he's saying. And he prays, Father, glorify your name. And God audibly speaks to him. Only the third time in all the gospels when they hear the voice of Jesus and people hear it and they don't quite understand what it means. And so Jesus then explains the significance of what he's about to do. This is a passage that shows us what the Christian faith is about and what the Christian life is about. That's what we're going to dig into today. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. We invite you now by your spirit to inform us and transform us. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. I want to just briefly, I'm going to spend most of our time on the second question about what does the cross tell us about the Christian life, but briefly, I want to just point out something that Jesus says about what the cross tells us about the Christian faith, right? Jesus has this reaction, God speaks, no one really understands what's going on, what's happening, Why why did the energy in the room just shift, what took place? And so Jesus explains it. And I think this answers the question, what does the cross tell us about the Christian life? Look at what he says in verse 31. He says, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Isn't it interesting that what Jesus says in verses 31 and 32 sound very triumphant, don't they? Look at it. Now's the judgment of the world. I'm going to judge the world. Now the ruler of the world will be cast out. Satan's going to be defeated. I'll be lifted up from the earth and draw all people to myself. So that all sounds very triumphant. But look at then again, verse 33. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Get this. The triumph of Jesus does not come in exaltation the way we think of it, but in his humiliation on the cross. The cross looks like defeat, but is actually the victory that all humanity needs. It looks like Jesus is being judged. It looks like Satan is winning. But in fact, the world is being judged. The death of Jesus is saying, listen, this is how bad your sin is. It takes the death of the son of God to pay for it. And while it looks like Satan triumphs while Jesus dies, in fact, Satan is dethroned. And this victory is one, as it says in verse 32, that is to draw all people to himself so that people from every tongue and tribe and nation could experience the beauty and the power and the grace of Jesus. Just like these Greeks who've showed up, the cross tells us that it may look like defeat, but it's the victory that all humanity needs. 
There's a lot more there that we could unpack, but Jesus spends more time talking about what this means for his followers. So not just how this should make us believe, but how this should make us live. And so I wanna spend most of our time answering this question. What does the cross tell us about the Christian life? About the Christian life. How does the death and suffering and passion narrative of Jesus change the way we should live? Not just the way we think, the way we live. Here's three thoughts from this text. The first one is that it's normal to feel troubled. The cross of Jesus tells us that it's normal to feel troubled. Look at what Jesus says in verse 27. He says, now is my soul troubled. Now, uh, I I wish there was a stronger English word to describe what Jesus is saying here. Because the the Greek, when we hear that English word troubled, it's like, oh, how, how cute. You're troubled. You know, troubled youth. You know, that kind of thing. Jesus is here, here, here's what this Greek word means. Inward turmoil, stirred up, unsettled, thrown into confusion. It's like Jesus saying a hurricane, a whirlwind, a tornado has just broken free in my heart, my soul. My soul is troubled. He's feeling the weight of the suffering he's about to endure. He's looking into the cup of God's wrath and knowing that he's going to have to drink every drop. He's feeling the pressure of knowing that he'll experience punishment and shame and abandoning that he does not deserve. And he is appropriately troubled. Listen, sometimes people want to tell you that if you're anxious and you're troubled and you're upset and you're depressed and you're hurting, it's because you don't have enough faith. And if you really trusted God, you'd be at peace. Are you quite ready to tell Jesus that his problem here is that he's not trusting God? I don't think you are. Now, can anxiety and depression and turmoil and trouble, can that come from not trusting God? Absolutely. So we should ask ourselves the question, God, am I, am I not trusting you? God, what can I learn? God, how can I depend on you? We should for sure ask those questions, but, but we should not assume that trouble of soul equals you're not trusting because it's normal to feel troubled. There's a second thing that we see from this. In our sadness, we surrender. What is this cross tell us about the Christian life is that in our sadness, we surrender. When we're troubled, we trust. Look at verses 27 and 28. Jesus says, now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I've come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Jesus' approach to feelings in this story, confronts older, traditional, stoic-type people and younger, progressive, feelings-are-absolute-type people. 
Right? This is kind of the way we think about things. And it doesn't always break down on generational lines, but it sometimes does, right? There are some people who, when you say, hey, how are you feeling? They say, could you rephrase the question? I don't get it. What are you talking about? What's a feeling? Right? There are some people who are just, they, they don't, they're out of touch with their feelings. And not just that, but they, they actually think they don't matter. Because they go, listen, I'm too busy. I got too much on my plate. I got too much work to do. There's too many important things. I don't have time to worry about my feelings. Jesus confronts that. There are also people who also tend to be younger on the whole. But again, anyone can have this mentality, which says that feelings are absolute. Feelings must be obeyed. Feelings must be followed. If I feel it, it must be real. If I feel it, it must be right. If I feel it, I must do it. Listen, Jesus, the way he responds, confronts both of those kinds of people. Jesus confronts the stoic because he's willing to admit how troubled he is. He's willing to say how sad he is, how vexed he is, how perplexed he is. He's honest about those feelings. He doesn't stuff it. He doesn't bury it. He doesn't pretend it doesn't exist. He gives voice to it. Some of you need permission. I'm giving it to you right now to feel sad, to feel angry, to feel troubled. You, you already feel it. And you're not sure what to do with it. And you're not, you don't think you should feel that way. And so you're stuffing it. Now, there's all sorts of wrong ways to handle it. But this is, take a cue from Jesus and be honest about what you're feeling. At the same time, Jesus confronts those who aren't stoic, but who are slaves to their feelings. Because when you're a slave to your feeling, you go, well, if I feel this, I better follow it. But not Jesus. Look at what he does. He says, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this hour, I've come to this. But for this purpose, I've come to this hour. This is why I came here, Father. He says, Father, glorify your name. Jesus surrenders his feelings. He submits his feelings to what he knows is the revealed will of his Father. Some of you need to follow that example. So you can't follow, obey do every feeling you have, every urge, every instinct. They're not all good. They're not all right. And they're not all what God wants for you. Now, this is where you often need help processing these things with other people. You often need help with a counselor or a therapist, somebody to help you make sense of these things. But beware of either stoically acting like you don't have feelings or slavishly having to follow them. Jesus confronts both. He neither denies nor obeys his feelings. Instead, he surrenders them to God. I just want you to see the chain of events that takes place in this passage. Here's, here's kind of the chain of events. It starts with the Greeks that come. These non-Jewish people come. It triggers for Jesus. Oh, wow, my hour is here. He, it causes Jesus to think about his death. It causes him to begin to feel his death. He begins to feel the agony, begins to feel the separation, begins to feel the pain. It causes Jesus to feel like running. Right? That's implied in verse 27. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. He's saying, I'm thinking about saying that. I'm thinking about running. I'm thinking about getting out of this. I don't want this. But instead, Jesus surrenders his will to his father, which leads to worship. Father, glorify your name. Jesus doesn't deny his sadness. 
He's honest about it. And actually, by being honest about it, it keeps him on the path of obedience, which is why you and I can have salvation. Here's how Paul Miller describes it in his book, Love Walked Among Us. He says, Jesus' willingness to face sadness sets in motion a chain of events that leads to his greatest act of love. Get this. Because he faced his sadness, he didn't run. Because he didn't run, he suffered. Because he suffered, he died. Because he died, he took the sins of the world on himself. As Jesus moves toward his death, he shows us that sadness can be a quiet work of love. Sadness doesn't get you answers all the time. It's just being honest about where you're at. So the cross tells us that the Christian life is one where we feel troubled. That's a normal thing. And our sadness, our discouragement, our anxiety, we, we surrender that to the Lord. But here's the third thing that the cross tells us about the Christian life is that we follow Jesus into death while we anticipate resurrection. We follow Jesus into death while we anticipate resurrection. That's the shape, that's the movement of the Christian life. Now, around our church, uh, at all nine of our congregations, our pastors have been walking for the last few years, being mentored by Paul Miller, who, uh, whose face you just saw there on the screen just a moment ago. He's come out every so often and been training and teaching us, and there's something he's introduced to us that has really been a helpful paradigm that we want to kind of begin to get in the water even of our church, because I think it's such a helpful picture of the Christian life, and it's called the J-curve the J-curve. And it's helpful because uh, Jesus starts with J, right? There you go. And so the shape, get this, the shape of Jesus' life and the shape of our life is this. We follow Jesus down into death and we come up with Jesus in resurrection. It's a J. Now we want to skip it. We just want to go straight to the resurrection. We just want to go straight to the good stuff. We want to go straight to the stuff that feels comfortable and happy. Jesus doesn't let us do that. Look at how he describes this in verses 24 and 25. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. You get this? Jesus is saying, when a seed, if a seed doesn't go down in the earth and die, nothing grows on the other side of it. It just sits there. But if a seed goes down into the ground and dies to itself, a new thing is born. A new thing emerges. This is what Jesus is saying. You're going to follow me in this way of life, because look at what it says there in verse 26. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. This is the shape of the Christian life, that we experience pain, that we experience loss, that we experience death, that we experience frustration, that we experience false accusations, that we experience all of these moments that don't feel like life, they feel like death. And we do that, we embrace it with anticipation that God is using resurrection on the other side, that that's not the end of the story. Now, the Apostle Paul, in his writing, he picks up on this very idea in Philippians chapter three. Here's what he says there. Talking about just the joy of knowing Christ, this is how he sets this up. He says, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. The best thing I've ever found, Paul's saying, is Christ. 
For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all kinds of things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Now get this, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Are you experiencing death? You thought retirement was gonna be like this. And instead it's like this. Relationships that used to be so important to you feel so fractured. Your career path used to be up and to the right, and now it's just stalled. There's a diagnosis. There's hard news. That's what it is to follow Jesus. It's to follow Jesus into death with hope, with faith, with anticipation that it leads to resurrection. Now, here's here's the thing. Part of what this means is that when we experience suffering, when we experience pain, when we experience stuff that we didn't choose, we didn't ask for, we didn't look for, it looked for us, that we embrace it, that we go with Jesus in it. And as we do that, we experience the fellowship of his suffering is what Paul says. But here's what this also means. This also means that if we're following Jesus, Because look, that's what it says. We're not just supposed to admire Jesus. Look at verse 26. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Follow him where? Where's Jesus going? Death. So here's what this means. This means not only do we embrace suffering when it comes our way, but that actually because of love, we move toward it. We move into death of comfort. We move into death of our resources. We move into death of security. We move into death of ease. We move into death, maybe even of health or life itself because of love. That's what this J curve is. It's inviting us, come, die to yourself because of love for others. Let me give you just a scenario to help flesh this out, how, how ordinary this is, right? This is not some, uh, like you have these big epic moments. You, you have opportunities all the time to follow Jesus in the J-curve. So here's a scenario. There's a, let's just imagine a woman who's a teacher. Her name's Jennifer. And uh, Jennifer is a fourth grade teacher and um, she has a bunch of uh, other teachers that are kind of in the fourth grade thing and one of them's pregnant with her first baby. And so they all kind of get together and go, hey, we're gonna have, uh, we're gonna have this uh, baby shower for Sarah. It's Sarah's first, first baby. And so let, let's do that. And they plan it and it's a month out. And, and so Jennifer is, is kind of uh, you know, interested in this. She wants to help. She loves Sarah. It's, it's great. And so her and the other teachers have the date on the calendar, but the, the days are going by and the days are going by and she's not hearing much. And she's wondering, is anybody planning anything? Is anybody doing anything? What's going on with this? And so at some point, she hasn't heard much, and so she just kind of steps up and goes, well, someone's got to, you know, 
do some of the work here, so I'll do some of the work here. And so she uh, starts enlisting people and getting decorations and making stuff happen. And she finds out a day before Sarah's shower, one of the other teachers comes to her and says, you know, Julie, one of the other teachers, Julie's very upset with you because she said you just took this whole thing over. And Jennifer's going, what do you, took it over? Like, no one was doing anything. I'm, she's thinking, like, what, I took it over? Like, that is not what happened. Well, Julie's really upset. Now, what are Jennifer's choices at this point? One choice is she can get angry, right? One choice is anger. She can lash out. Nobody appreciates me. No one appreciates the work I do. That's why I hate working at this school anyway. She can just get real mad. The other thing she can do is get bitter, which is quiet anger, just in nicer clothes. <laughs> Still angry, just seething, it's below the surface, stuff it down. But you know what happens when you stuff it down, it oozes out. Maybe she can just withdraw. You know what? Fine. The shower's tomorrow. You guys just figure it out. I'll put my decorations away. We don't need to do it. You guys, fine. You guys just do your thing. Or another option, she can gossip. She can go, well, you know what? Let me tell you something about Julie and how Julie takes stuff over. You want to talk about taking over? Let me tell you about her, right? And now, and now she can go, well, let me figure out how can I pit up teams and team Julie, team Jennifer, right? Or she can follow Jesus into death say, man, I don't know how that got misunderstood. Gosh, that hurts. I really am troubled and frustrated and mad and angry that Julie would feel like that, but you know what? They, they made false accusations of Jesus, and, and so if I just seek him in the middle of it, maybe there will be fellowship in his suffering. Opportunities to follow Jesus into the way of death with hopes of resurrection, they are everywhere. Maybe your wife's taking a much needed weekend away with some friends or with some sisters and you're left home with the kids and it's as hard as you imagined it would be. <laughs> what do you do? Do you constantly text your wife, boy, this is hard. Boy, this is difficult. Boy, another one acted up. Do you, when you talk to her, make sure she knows how hard it is? Or do you follow Jesus into death? You're a leader who has a hard decision. No matter what decision you make, people will not like you. People will be unhappy about it. People will misunderstand it. What do you do? Do you pawn it off on someone else? Make excuses? Try to cover your... Heine, or do you follow Jesus into death? Your ex-wife says mean, manipulative things to your kids about you. They're not true, and they're vindictive, and they're angry, and they're sowing all sorts of horrible things into your kids. Do you get revenge? So let me tell you about your mom. 
or do you follow Jesus into death? Your adult kids seem like they have a lot better relationship with your daughter-in-law or your son-in-law and their family. There's all these traditions they have and you don't have those with your son or your daughter. What do you do? Do you guilt trip them? Do you passive aggressively make comments? Or do you follow Jesus into death? Your baby starts fussing in the middle of the night. Do you pretend you're asleep? Gentlemen. Or do you follow Jesus into death? Listen, this is everywhere. This is the Christian life. Listen, we so desperately want the world to embrace the Christian faith. I don't think anyone will ask about the Christian faith until they see us live the Christian life. And even if they see it, they might just take advantage of it. Because once you start on this path of death, there's no telling when it starts to turn. You might go down, 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 and you're thinking, it's got to be soon. It's got to be soon. It's got to be soon. But it isn't. You don't know. How many people start down this path of death, but they're so resistant to it. They're so trying to just escape hatch and catapult up to the resurrection side. And then they're going, God, where are you in this? God, how come I don't feel you near me? Here's why. Because you did not embrace the fellowship of his suffering. This is a game changer for how we follow Jesus. This passage, along with so much of the New Testament, tells us a beautiful, beautiful perspective of what it is to participate with Christ. Let me show you just one more image. Here's what it is to participate in Christ. At the root, at the foundation of our faith is that Christ dies for me. That Christ, through his sacrificial death, has upended the power structures of the world, has uh, looked as though he was defeated, but instead won victory so that whoever would believe in him wouldn't perish, but have eternal life. That's what our faith is built on. Christ dies for me. But then the way we live it is we live a life of love. And love says, Christ died for me. I'll die for you. I'll go down into death. And I'll trust God to bring me out the other side. Whew. You want to follow Jesus? Listen, we all want the bottom one. We don't want the top one. Maybe this is what got you into this. You were going, you know what? I just, I know I got all this trouble. I know I got all this sin. I know I got all this pain. I'm going to trust Jesus and it'll all get better. You know what? It will. Someday. But until then, if anyone would serve Jesus, you gotta follow him. And as you do, you experience the sweetness of his presence, the fellowship of his suffering, and the promise that he will make all things new. Let's pray. God, thank you for Jesus. 
God, we love the promise that Christ died for sinners once and all, once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God. We love that. God, thank you for that good news. Thank you that uh, there's nothing we could do. There's no way we could sacrifice ourselves to somehow atone for our sin or bring us into right relationship with you. God, thank you for that. And at the same time, God, give us power and give us strength. Give us your spirit so that we could have the ability to die to ourselves for the love of others so that you would be glorified, so that you would bring life out of death. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks, Luke.